today uh, we are continuing in our studies from the book of Acts, okay, and we are on uh, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if, if you have been to, if you have a long enough church history or church background, you'll know what an evangelistic sermon sounds like. You'll know what the Christmas and Easter sermons sound like. You will know what pastors will tend to preach about when it is time to welcome many visitors and to share with them the gospel. Sometimes we may even end up thinking of them as salvation sermons, right? As opposed to as if there are other sermons, sermons like you know, discipling sermons or like vision casting sermons. But, but, you must know this, that when the early church wanted to preach what we so-called call a salvation sermon, they don't preach it quite the same way as we do today. In fact, they will focus pretty much entirely on two things, and two things only. Jesus' death and resurrection. His death in the hands of wicked men. His resurrection, which legitimizes that He is Israel's Messiah and therefore the Lord of the whole world. And that often would be where they close. And then many people would come to Him. And today we find ourselves uh, um, often speaking about other things and there's nothing wrong with that. But I just found it very fascinating how the earliest Christians, today we're going to see Peter do it, would approach sharing the good news in this way. And today, just today, we're going to dip a little bit into what it means for us to look into both the death and the resurrection of our Lord and to have our hearts turned to Him through that. I'm going to read some scripture and I'm going to and I'm going to plunge into this. Acts chapter 2, remember if you've got your Bibles, I've been encouraging you to bring your Bibles, okay? Bring your Bibles. Good. Buddy, you've got your Bible, okay? If you are the note-taking kind, I want to encourage you to take notes in your Bibles. If not, then take notes somewhere else. But either way, let's, let's not just be hit by the book of Acts this year and then to have, uh, ha have it pass by us, but let's allow the Word of God to transform us. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be helped by it. For David says according concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." End quote. Verse 29, Brothers, Peter continues, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May the Lord bless the reading of His word. Father, we thank You, Lord God. And may You teach us, Father God, through this sermon And today's sermon about a sermon, Father, we pray that you guide us and lead us into all truth, that the name of Jesus will be magnified and glorified and exalted and be made much of and be seen as beautiful, Lord God, more exceedingly beautiful than anything else, Lord God, the world has to offer. And so, Father, as we step on the threshold of an encounter with you, Father, humble us. May we ask, Lord God, that we decrease, may you increase. To the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, that was a lot of stuff. Okay, that was a lot of stuff in that sermon that Peter just preached. And you will see on this last slide, it says, so uh, with many other words, right? With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. That's just a little note for us to remember that if it takes us about two and a half minutes to read uh, uh, this text today, Peter's sermon would have been quite a lot longer. And the ancient uh, uh, um, gospel writers would have, they would not include the entire transcript of Peter's sermon. If they did, he would finish uh, his entire scroll right here at Peter's first sermon. So they do pick and choose which parts of Peter's sermon to, to show in, this, this is Luke. Luke would pick and choose which parts to insert. Luke is making edit, some editorial decisions under the hand of the Holy Spirit. And out of all the things that, that Peter would have preached on that day, as it says here, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. He chose these words. And I want to summarize what you just saw, right? If I summarize it, it goes like this. Remember that last week, 
where we were is that Pentecost had just taken place. And when I say Pentecost took place, what I mean is that the Spirit of God fell in power in the form of tongues of fire on the believers who were gathered together in one place. And then they broke out in new tongues. The Jewish passerbys, passersby, okay, uh, so heard this, stopped, listened, and then some who were from, f- from foreign places heard it in their, their own tongue. And then some who had, so to speak, no eyes to see, no ears to hear, started mocking them and said that these guys must be drunk. And then Peter gets up, Peter says, guys, no way they're drunk. It's too early in the morning. I think he's being a little bit cheeky. And then he launches into his defense. And his defense is not, it's too early in the day to be drunk, right? It's as if to say, if it was later, then maybe this could be, this could, they might be drunk. That's not, that's not Peter's argument. Peter's argument immediately, after his little jibe about it being too early to be drunk, is Joel chapter 2. All you Jews from all these foreign nations. And some of you may very well be Jewish elite. Teachers, scribes, don't you know your Joel chapter 2? Joel chapter 2 says, and you should know this, that on that last day, the Lord will pour out His Spirit upon all the sons and daughters, the manservant, the maidservants, and they will all prophesy. Old men will dream dreams, young men will see visions, and upon everyone and those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Signs, wonders will take place. And he's saying already, people, my people, Jewish people, at this point, all this action is happening in Jerusalem only. He's saying, my people, do you not see Joel 2 in what is taking place? If you don't see it, I'm going to tell you what's happening. This is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And then he goes on. And the summary is a little bit like this. He says that Jesus and all that he had done while he was living... All the wonders, the raising up of Jairus' daughter, for example, the healing of the sick, the, the, the turning of the water into wine, and the authority with which he preached until the point where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law said, who is this who teaches with authority? All of these signs and wonders is an authentication of God. God legitimizes Him through all of these things, through the signs and wonders, as if to give you no shadow of doubt. This is someone special. And then you, Jewish people, went and killed Him. But God raised Him up. God raised Him up. And let me tell you something. And Peter is going to display quite a, quite a strong ability to handle and know his ways around scriptures. I think it's important for us to know. Peter was a fisherman. He was not a scholar. And if you, and if you understand how Jewish children are raised, you are raised up to a certain point, and then you are given the chance to continue or to go and ply your trade. And if you continue, if you're good enough in your, in your scriptures, you will continue to the next level and the next level. And I know that even until the 20th century, uh, Orthodox Jewish children would memorize the entire Torah by the time they are about five. Five, 
entire Torah, right? Uh, uh, Genesis, uh, 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 Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all memorized by the time they are about five, six years old. And then, um, then they would memorize the entire uh, Mishnah, which is the commentaries on the Torah, by the time they are about 11, 12. And then maybe by about the time they are about 11, uh, sorry, by the time they are about 18, they would have memorized the Torah, the Mishnah, and the, and the Talmud, right? Which is commentaries on the commentaries on, on the Torah, right? And so, if you don't make the grade, somewhere along the line, you go and ply your trade. So, the ones who ply their trade end up, like Peter, as fishermen, okay? Or whatever trade it is your father uh, would have plied. And this Peter, who is plying his trade, is starting to show quite a strong ability to know his way around scriptures. Because, for someone who is uneducated, so to speak, he starts quoting not just Joel 2. He's already thrown Joel 2 at them. And now he's going to throw Psalm 16 at them. And he, he puts Psalm 16 before them and say, Look, David, King David, speaking about the resurrection. King David says that, I will, Lord, you will not abandon your, my soul to corruption and to Hades. My flesh will not rot, so to speak. And he says this, and then he goes on to make this argument that, look, but we all know that David passed away and his tomb is with us until this day. That's a polite way of saying, guys, we know that David's body saw corruption. And we know that David's body has rotted. The flesh, the actual flesh has rotted. So, David can't be talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah to come, the son of David, the the, the, the descendant of David, the one who is to come through the family line of David, is the one whom will not, whose body will not see corruption. That's what David is saying. That's why he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Come and sit at my right hand until all your enemies are as your footstool. So, it's, Peter's doing something quite quite high level, okay? Peter's doing something quite interesting and it's, it's forcing us to really engage not just with the reality that we see, which is there is a Jesus. He has resurrected, kononia. He has ascended, kononia. And after that, his spirit has fallen, kononia. Unless some people think he's, they are drunk, okay? And the skeptics are looking at all these things and unsure about what to make of it. Peter goes into Joel, he goes into Psalm 16, he goes into Psalm 110, and then he says, this Jesus who was resurrected, match against Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, legitimizes that he is the Messiah spoken of in Psalm 16. He is the Messiah spoken of in Psalm 110. He is the Messiah spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God speaks to uh, uh, Solomon and says that I will raise up your offspring after you. And now, remember the two weeks ago I shared with you, now you see a new, a, a new through a new lens when we see 2 Samuel 7 and, and, and when, when, where God speaks and says, I will raise up for you an offspring after you. It's no longer just I will raise up like, a, like you raise a child up, but it's I will resurrect your offspring after you. That's Jesus. New lens. New lens to see all Scripture in new light, to see Christ in the Scriptures. That's powerful thing happening here in Acts chapter 2. Now, this Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's being glorified. He's at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit outpouring, which you saw at Pentecost, which you thought was someone, were, were a group of people who were drunk. It's, they are not, in fact, drunk. 
in fact, this is a legitimizing of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as promised in Joel 2. So, what's your response? Repent. What's your response? Turn back. Turn back from your mocking. Turn back from your disbelief. Turn back from your skepticism. Turn back from your cynicism. Turn back from all the things you had to, you, where you were. Not least of all, in this crowd, probably containing many of the Jews who just not too long ago, 40 days prior, were shouting before Pilate saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! Let his blood be on us! Shocking. Shocking things for them to say. Now Peter offers them a way out. Peter says, Repent and get on board, man. Get on board. Get on board this Jesus Get on board because why? Soon, very soon, and we know now in seven chapters soon, right? The whole world is going to get on board as well. So you know. And this is a summary of the sermon. Of the, uh, this is a summary of Peter's sermon on the death and resurrection. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. We're going to look at uh, the death of Jesus and show you that on in Jesus' death, he absorbed the worst kind of evil. The most the most utterly repugnant evil you could throw at anyone, Jesus absorbed it all on the cross. I also want to show you that He was killed. He was killed not just by, not just by people He was warring with. He was killed by the very people He came to save. He was killed by those He loved. And then I want to talk to you about the resurrection. Let me show it to you this way. The resurrection of Jesus and how in His resurrection, Jesus is legitimized as two things. One, He is now Israel's Messiah, plain, clear to see. Jesus, this Jesus, is Israel's Messiah and because He is Israel's Messiah, He is also the world's Lord. He is Kyrios, Lord, and Christos, Messiah. And through His resurrection, He cuts a road out of the dead end. Have you ever driven to a dead end and you have to do a three-point turn if you're skilled or maybe a five-point turn if you're not so skilled to back out of a dead end? Jesus cuts a dead end out for you. In your life, in whatever situation you found yourself in, you find yourself staring at hopelessness, at uh, um, no path forward. You find yourself stuck and lacking in options. Jesus cuts a road out in front of you. That is the power of resurrection. I want to lead you uh, 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 to see a few things, a, a few ways to frame your thoughts. Two ways. Number one, the Jewish people understood all of these things in a context where they were part of a large story. And for the Jewish people, there has always been a very large story. It is a story that begins in Genesis. It's a story that involves God having a good and good, perfect plan for them and how there were many pivot points in that story that either took them further from that goal or nearer to that goal. And throughout that story, there were many times when they took many steps back, swung out and got lost and then came back again and went lost and came back again. But they always knew... They they were part of a large cosmic story. They can place themselves, I am here in this story. And in this story, uh, as the Old Testament ends, they are waiting. When, the, when Malachi ends in your Old Testament, they are 
waiting when if you follow the Jewish uh, Bible it ends at second chronicles the ending of second chronicles they are waiting waiting for what the continuation of that grand story and they are trying to find where I where am I in this grand story as it continues how must it continue Messiah must come for it to continue and so they are waiting anxiously eagerly praying for Messiah to come and constantly expecting the story to come to a fulfillment when Messiah comes on the throne and their nation is saved and they become, as they thought in that day, top nation and can kick out Rome and, and so on and so forth. But now, the story does continue and it continues in an unexpected way, my friends. Now, here we are in Malaysia some of us are from Malaysia, some of us are not from Malaysia, but we may not be raised up to have our lives as part, to see our lives as part of a continuation of a large, global, cosmic, historical story. I don't think most of us have that. In fact, many of us, our ancestors are migrants here to Malaysia. And as children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren of migrants, our stories don't trace behind, further back than the day our ancestors got on a boat somewhere. Could be in India, could be in China. They got on some boat, they made their way to our shores. And if we want to trace our stories, our stories don't go further than that. Are there stories? Yes. Are they lost forever? Very likely. And we don't know what happened in China that drove them. We have a way of rounding up and rounding down and approximating what drove them onto those boats. But you know, my friends, it's hard to live a life that is truly meaningful if you can't place yourself in a big story. But we don't. But today, I want to place you into this grand narrative of God. Because God has adopted you, He has rescued you, He has lifted you out of darkness into marvellous light. And when He does that, He doesn't only save you so you can be whisked off to heaven and play a harp, you know, on the clouds, you know, uh, on that day. He does it so that your life has infinite meaning. He does that so that you can become part of a grand move of God pushing into the day when New Jerusalem comes down and we shall all step in and be, be in the glory of God and glorify God, you know, forever. He does that so that our lives are not just lost pixels floating about in this world, but that we, that one pixel gets fit into a larger schema so that when we are all together, we display the manifold wisdom and power of God. That's why He saves us. And that's why outside of Christ, your life will only ever be as meaningful as the immediate few pixels around you and the best you can do with, with whatever pixels that you appear that you think you can see around you but when God saves you he saves you into a grand story and that story it goes before us that story transcends all of us I want to show you now another picture to frame your thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ because this is the major pivot point of our grand story okay it is found in Philippians chapter 2. And in this Philippians chapter 2, you're going to see on one slide a, a plunging down. I want you to see a V, okay? I want you all to see a V. A plunging down from high heights down to the deepest depths. This is, 
describing the life and death of Jesus. And then on the next slide, you're going to see the reverse side of the V. The climbing up from the depths to the highest heights. In fact, you may even say higher than the original heights. The highest possible heights. And this describes the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? This is Jesus. Who? Though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped or as a thing to be leveraged on, as a thing to take advantage of. He did not count equality with God something to, to short sendiri about, to use Malaysian language. But he emptied himself. And by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and you know he was born in very humble circumstances, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the cross is a, is a, is a death offered only to the most despised, the most to be humiliated of criminals in the Roman Empire. And they would hang them on crosses it was not entirely rare, as some historical records will show, along the entire, um, along the entire highways. So that as you were travelling into major cities, you would see dead bodies hanging on crosses. As a reminder, do not step on the toes of Caesar or any of those whom Caesar empowers, because this will be your fate. This is the story of the cities in Rome. And as you step in, you see this on a hill, Jesus on a cross, so to speak, plunged from the greatest heights of equality with God to the death on a cross. But I want to show you Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 onwards. Therefore, therefore it's important, as good students of the Bible, we know that every time you see a therefore, you need to know what the therefore is there for. Right? And the therefore here is there to show us that because of this, because of this, this could take place. Because of this, this could take place. If Jesus was the kind of Son of God, I use human speaking to, to, to illustrate this. If Jesus was the kind of Son of God who was too posh to come to the world He created, if He was too, too uh, 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 putra lilin to step into this horrendous earth, would He have experienced the resurrection, the power, and the hyper-exalting? I think the therefore is here to remind us that these two things come together. In the humbling of Jesus to a death, a despicable death on a cross, therefore, God has hurperipsuo, hyper-exalted. Your translations in your Bible will say highly exalted. And that's just uh, uh, your Bible translators using proper English and normal English to express huperupsuo, right? But it means he has hyper-exalted. means to highly exalt someone. You can highly exalt the, uh, a, a royal family, uh, uh, a member of the, your, your king, right? You can highly exalt them and say, oh, great king, right? Um, but highly exalt can have many different gradients of highly exalt. But there is only one hyper-exalt. And the original Greek says he was hyper-exalted. 
almost as if to say that the exalting, and some theologians think about it this way, his exalting even exceeded the original standing. Some theologians don't think about it that way. It's okay. That's not your problem. That's theologians' problem. All, all we need to know is that God hyper-exalted him to the highest, highest possible place and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that there is no name, no word, no power, no entity that is greater than this name of Jesus Christ. So that at this name of Jesus, every knee one day will bow. Every tongue one day will confess, Lordship, this is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now as we go into the death and resurrection of Christ, which I will breeze through now, I want you to see that V, right? The falling and coming down, not falling, but the coming down of the Son of God from glory to humble death and then the exalting to triumphant uh, 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 kingness. His death, he absorbed the worst evil possible. The text says this, this Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And I want us to be a little bit geeky for, the, for just a moment, okay? I know I've been a little bit geeky. I want us to just stay with me. I want to show you what Peter is doing. He says that he were, they were killed by the hands of lawless men. Some of your translations will say, handed over to lawless people to be killed. Now, it's not quite the same because I think if you look into the Greek, Peter is doing something very interesting here. Okay? Now, to say that he was handed over to lawless people means hand pe handed Jesus to people outside the Torah. Meaning, I handed you to the Romans. I hand this Jesus to the Romans, people who are outside the law, lawless men, right? To kill. So it's like I subcontract out the death of Jesus to lawless people. Romans, and then they did the killing. But when you look at the Greek, Peter is equating the Jewish crowd with the Romans by using, putting it all together. The literal Greek says, given up this part, okay? This part which I showed you here, this highlighted part, literally says, given up by means, activity of the lawless, nailed against and lifted up. What that means, this is the Greek, okay? Word by word, tite tite is like this, okay? He was given up by the means and activity of lawless hands and done what too? Nailed against the cross and then lifted up, right? That's what it literally means. Now, if you are a Jew and you're familiar with your Jewish scriptures and you are being told, spoken of as if to insinuate that you are lawless men, your mind will go back to the worthless men of the Old Testament your mind will likely go back to some of the worthless men who came and gave false testimony um, on behalf of someone like King Ahab against an innocent man like Naboth. Your mind will go back to some of the, the worthless men who opposed and rebelled against King David on all the occasions when he faced rebellion around him. Your mind will go back to all these instances where worthless men, wicked men, lawless men arose against the king arose against the one who was right, arose against innocence and righteousness and justice, and in so doing, perverted and defiled justice. This is what Peter is trying to say. So he's saying, Jesus was handed into lawless hands. And now, it's not just hand over to Roman hands. Lawless hands means y'all are lawless. You use other lawless people. Collectively, you're killed. The one 
who loved you and who saved you. Which means that when you look at the entire journey of Jesus from, from the moment He was arrested in Gethsemane, who were these lawless men? I don't know if there were women. I don't think in the, the text shows us members of this lawlessness who were women. But there were from the band of soldiers who came bearing clubs and swords to arrest the man who was in peace, for, to arrest the man who was peaceful and preaching among them every day. Lawless men. To Judas who came and betrayed him with a kiss. Lawless men. To the high priest Caiaphas who led the kangaroo court the trial and brought out false witnesses, worthless men. And then the scribes and elders spat on him and slapped him around and, and mocked him and made fun of him. To Herod, who quizzed him and together with Herod's own soldiers put added more mocking clothes onto, uh, onto Jesus as if to mock him that he was a king. To Pilate, who had the chance to do the right thing and did not because he pandered out of fear to the crowd. To the Jewish mob who hollered and said, Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, let his blood fall on us. To the Roman soldiers who beat him, flogged him, and whipped him, and ripped off his flesh with their, with their extremely cruel whips, and then nailed his hands to a cross, nailed his feet to a cross, to those who mocked him, walking past the cross, and mocked him, said, If you were the Son of God, get yourself off this cross. Since you saved so many people, ha, can you save yourself? To the thief on the cross, we know that at least two of them were both reviling him, as it says in Matthew, uh, um, and in Matthew and in, in, in Mark. And then in Luke, Luke adds this little anecdote as if to say that one of them snapped out of it, turned to the other one and said, Look! Do you see what's happening? We're mocking this guy, but he did no wrong. And the fear of the Lord must have come into that one of the thieves. And he said to Jesus, Lord, receive me in your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly on this day, you will be with me in paradise. And so you see a litany, a list of people, hands of lawless men thrown Jesus off to die. My friends, and here we are in 2023 and many of us continue to ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? We ask of the Lord, God, I follow you, I'm faithful. I go to church, I go to cell, I read my Bible, I pray. Why is life so hard? God, I turn to you in times of trouble. Why do I still face, face impossible situations? Why do I still face such trial? Why are people still opposed to me? Why, why, why am I constantly facing an uphill battle? Why? And Jesus reminds us, in my death, in my death, wickedness, lawlessness, and pure evil fell upon me. Fell upon me. And Jesus says this, for, for sin, for the deepest sin, I think today we may, not, we may not really appreciate what true, pure evil can look like. Because we live in an age where in our films, the villains always get humanized. Just a little bit enough for us to feel like, oh, 
You know, I see why he's like that. He had a broken childhood. He had a this. He was abused as a kid. He was, you know, he, he, he's just doing revenge for some other factors that happened in his life. We humanize our villains. And to some extent, I get it. To some extent, it's good storytelling, you know, uh, to, to no longer tell with plain blacks and whites. I get it. But along the way, it comes at a cost. Along the way, the cost is that when we no longer are told stories of true villainy and evil, pure, absolutely wicked evil, we may not have the sensitivity to be able to understand that real evil is really absolutely evil. And so with this, I, 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 want, I, want, I want you to see, my church, that on the cross, Jesus absorbed the purest, truest, complete, when I say pure, I don't mean holy pure, I mean in most pekat, 100% evil that could be levied on anyone. Satan and his powers of darkness using agents on earth did their absolute worst. Everyone on this list did their absolute worst onto an innocent man and brutally killed him. And what's worse, he was not just innocent. He had come to rescue them. He had come to save them. In Jesus' death, he absorbed the worst kinds of evil. And my church, he has called every one of us. He did say these words, Church, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, Church, do you want to come after Jesus? Don't say yes yet. Okay, I know you do. I know you do. He says, if you want to come after me, I need you to take up your cross. I need you to deny yourself. I need you to follow me. If you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And part of denying yourself and picking up your cross is to go through an experience to the extent that you and I can humanly take it. A journey of what Jesus himself went through. So that today, in, 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 in much later, Peter would say in his own epistle, the considerate, no, it was James who said it, that to consider it pure joy when we face all kinds of suffering and all kinds of, all kinds of oppression and all kinds of opposition. Why? Because when we go through that, we know we are going through the journey of Jesus. We are going on our own via De La Rosa. We are going through the journey of the King. And we are going through our own humbling before the Lord can exalt. Amen? Violence is something that you cannot pay back. Something I've learned in life, something I've learned through stories, something I've learned in my own life. Every time we fight back, every time we pay back, every time we stick it to them, they receive new energy to stick it back to us. And I remember seeing a Brazilian art film. Uh, I forget the name of the film, but it was, sorry? City of God. It might have been City of God, but it might have, it, I think it was another film by the same director. Um, it's about two warring families. And two warring families who would, they can't trace back how far it goes, but one family will kill another family's son. And then in retaliation, one, this family will find another one of their sons and kill them. And this, these two warring tribes would go on and on and on. And, and the story tells, the story begins with, you see this story through the eyes of a young man from one of those families. And he is this generation's hunted man. 
he is this generation's one who is about to get killed. Or if I'm not mistaken, maybe he is the one who is supposed to go and kill the other side already. And in this story, it tells, it, it, it shows you what vengeance and a culture and a generational lifestyle of vengeance looks like. And then this boy decides at some point, things happen and this family absorbs the evil done to them with no retaliation. This family decides in their generation, they will put an end to this cycle of death and the cycle of death and vengeance. They absorbed it with no retaliation. One of their sons earlier was killed and they said, we will not kill anymore. And in so doing, in so doing, this other family received no new, fresh excuse to retaliate. And they had nothing to do. They cannot fight really. Cannot push back already. Cannot kill their, any more of their sons. Who needs to absorb the violence? One person. One family. One generation needs to absorb that violence and say, I will not reflect it back again. I'm just going to absorb it and take the hit. And when you... And when... Y'all can hear me, right? These guys are going to work on it. But no worries. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a mic thing. It's a sound system thing. No worries. Thanks so much, Pastor Ramesh. I'm just going to pass this back to you. One generation needs to absorb the violence. And in the same way, I'm sharing this with all of you. If you are treated badly, if you are on the receiving end of back after back after back after back of being treated ill, spoken ill, treated badly, injustice, violence even, to push back, to hit back, would be to give new cause, give new energy for the cycle of death and vengeance to keep repeating. My church, one generation needs to absorb it. Jesus absorbed it on our behalf in a cosmic way so that never again should we feel like we need to pay back. Vengeance. Vengeance. <laughs> Belongs to who? Belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' death, He absorbed violence. And in Jesus' death, he was killed by those he loved. Same text. This man attested to you by God. Attested, legitimized to you through all of his works. And his works were not just shock and awe. His works were not just fireworks like, see how king I am. Choo, 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 choo. Yay, I am the son of the living God. His, his works and signs and wonders was he went to grieving mums and he raised their daughters. He went to sick family in families uh, with sickness and he raised up the dead. He healed those who were grieving. He, he, he found lepers and he healed them and he sent them away without asking for thank yous and then one came back, right? We, his, his acts of signs and wonders were always acts of love. Look at them. Look at the crowd. How can we send them home without food? We have to feed them. But Lord, we have nothing. I love them. I will feed them. And his signs and wonders were always like that. Peter, don't be afraid. It is I. Walk. Walk to me. Come, step out of your boat. Why? When he steps out of his boat, he walks on the water. His faith grows. All of his signs and wonders were acts of love. And yet, a crowd, 
A crowd, the crowd that received His love cried for His blood. And yet Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And this is not easy, I know. I know this is not easy. But He says, love your enemies. He says, pray for those who persecute you. He did not say, ignore your enemies. And if you are in the same, same company, then just pray for a transfer to a very far away department so you don't have to, to a different floor, so you don't have to use the same pantry. He didn't say that. He says, pray. Pray for them. He also says, he also, he also says, come Judas, let me wash your feet. You know, if you look at John chapter 13, he washes the feet first. Then Judas takes leave. Meaning that Jesus would go to the humblest to wash the smelly feet of all 12 disciples, knowing, including the one who would very soon, within hours, betray him with a kiss on the, on the cheek. He washed their feet. That's how much he loves even those he knows will sell him out. And on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They have no clue who they are killing. They don't know what they do. And on the cross, when the thief turned and repented, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus loved every single one of those who hated him and who were cruel to him. He died for them. Church, today, Jesus is calling every one of us to a high call. And I'm, got, I'm not going to undermine how high His call is for us. His call is for us to lay down our lives, including for those who hate us, including to those, for those who oppress us and who do wicked things to us. I read a comment on the internet just this week. Someone said, it's so stupid to love your enemies. To love your enemies is a sign of surrender that you, that you endorse the things your enemy does. And that's a, it's a sign of weakness and surrender. It's a sign of intellectual surrender. That you, and I was just reading this and thinking, my friend, I hope that one day you get to en enjoy the love of someone whom you hate. So you know that it is extraordinary. It takes extraordinary journeying from one end to cross a great divide that is our flesh to love someone who hates you. And I pray every one of us will be able to love those who give us a hard time. People whom we struggle to forgive. People who have who, needled us or hurt us or stabbed us or wounded us. Or I, I, my, that's my prayer. My friends, even right now, I want to pray. I want to lead us to pray. If there's any one of you, you're, you can remember, you know that there are people you just in your heart and in your flesh you will not lay your life down for. Jesus has not just called you to just move on peacefully. He has called you to lay your life for them. And that's a high call. And I'm shooting today for a high call. Oh, Father God, Today we are here, Father God, to engage in your word, to engage in the love, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus on the cross that he used to show us how much he loves us. Oh Jesus, 
Give us the strength. Give us the ability. Enable us, Lord God, to forgive. Enable us to love those, to love those who've hurt us, to love those who've wounded us. Not with my love, Lord. I know I don't have the love. I know I don't have the love, Lord God. But I know that you have the love. I know that you have the love, O oh Lord God. And today I'm asking, Lord God, for an outpouring of your love into my heart, Lord God, so that I can reach across phone lines, reach across years, reach across wounds to go back one day and to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And it was Christ. It was Christ who has energized me to do this. To Christ be praised. Not me. Not me. If you know me, I would never have done this. But Christ alone be praised. And as you pray this prayer, my church, I want you to be humbled before Him. Because He was humbled to a death, a lowly death upon a cross. Let us in this posture of humility not to atas until we cannot forgive others. Not to atas until we cannot walk on our own Via Dolorosa. So here I bow to lift you high, Jesus, be glorified in all things. For all my life, I am yours forever yours. So here I bow to lift you high, Jesus, be glorified in all things. For all my life, I am yours, forever yours. Father, we thank you, Lord God. I pray that as we continue looking at your word, that you will lead us day by day into communion with you, O Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I've talked to you about Jesus' death. Very quickly, I want to walk you through Jesus' resurrection. I told you just now that in his resurrection, the Father in heaven legitimized His Son. Legitimized His Son as not just Israel's Messiah. Though He did. Through Psalm 16, He did. He shows that this is the same. You see this resurrected Jesus. You've heard the stories about Him. You've heard the testimony and the witness about this resurrected Jesus. Same as the resurrection spoken of in Psalm 16. This Jesus raised to life. This Jesus you killed him. This Jesus, hyper-exalted now to stand at the right hand of the Father. This is the Jesus whom you have to engage with today. My friends, I come from a religious background that is a, that is a strange and very organic mix of Buddhism, Hinduism, and some normal Chinese Pai Pai ancestors, not ancestors, but Pai Tikong and Kuan Yin and all those kind of things. I, I come from that kind of milieu, right? And I grew up uh, not attending Sunday school like uh, Christian kids. I grew up attending uh, this 
this uh, uh, kind of like a Hindu version of uh, Sunday school. It was on Friday nights, um, and it was called Balvikas. Okay, and and at this at these classes, we would like color uh, uh, all the pictures of the Hindu gods, and we were we were, we were taught uh, the Hindu epics. You know, I, I remember uh, uh, sitting intently listening to the epic of the Ramayana and listening to all these things. I I, I grew up that way. Okay, so so I'm a little off off center like that. Um, now now. Witnessing and being told of, of very, very incredible supernatural things was not, was not a big deal to me. I, I took it as a given. I took it as a given that monkeys, monkey gods can become the size of countries and then take one step from one country to another. These things was like part of my milieu. I, I took it as believable from the start. Right, um, and so when I became a Christian and I encountered um, a lot of literature on resurrection, all coming from the West, okay, and I saw how hard the uh, um, Western theologians were trying to deal with resurrection, and I saw how how many uh, um, column inches and pages and volumes and tombs were devoted to to helping Christians see that a man could be raised from the dead, that this is believable, and then they go into all the scientific evidences, and they go into all the historical evidences, and they go into all the textual evidences, and I'm like, why are you working so hard? It's, it's, it, it's just, it's a dead man coming alive. These things happen, right? Right? But, um, I, I discovered that to the Western mind, that post-enlightenment in history, it's, it's no, no, these things don't happen, you know? And, and for, for you to say these things happen is very illogical, it's very unscientific, it is very absurd, and thinking humans should not accept these things. And that's generally the way the Western world is until now. But we, you don't need to have my religious upbringing to know that if you live in Malaysia, the stories about Pontiana and Hantu and, and, uh, and, 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 and all the... I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's the name for that. You know, I, we grow up with these things in our milieu, and so uh, uh, to have stories of a haunted house is like it's nothing. We know these things happen. To hear stories about wow, this person laid this curse on that person, and then uh, this person put a pakwa in their house to pantol the thing back. You know, like to hear these kind of stories is normal. Okay, we 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 grow. Many of us grow up with it. Maybe few among us grew up in very atheistic Western thinking families where these things are like ah, oh, it's just rubbish. You know. Um, most of us grew up with, with supernatural things And if, uh, for, for our African friends Maybe you, you hear even more things, right? Um, and so resurrection was something that was difficult for me um, uh, when, I, when I encountered it as a new, new Christian Because it seemed like um, the scholars were making a very big deal About something that I took as like This is not a big deal People get raised back to life It's it's, it's, it's a done thing, right? Um, but when I started to bring these two traditions together um, and I understood and I could see that a lot of the stories of, of fantastical things happening in my Hindu background or my Buddhist background or whatever you, you, you want to call it um, were, may or may not have been historically Anchored in historicity. Historicity means like actual historical events, right? Um, some of these things um, may be passed down from a time before um, uh, written manuscripts uh, could 
could give some kind of evidence. So it could, it, it's very much in an oral tradition, right? Um, and over time, I started to see that when these two traditions come together, by these two traditions, I mean our very Asian tradition of, of supernatural is a part of our day-to-day -day reality. And together with the scholarship that the West has done to show us how historical is the resurrection of Jesus and how believable it can be um, that history, not just not just Christian history, but non-Christian history, also attesting to the reality of a Jesus, how he was uh, uh, um, crucified, the tomb, these things, right? And when I, when I think about all these things coming together, and I think that this resurrection is not just become spirit, boom, disappear. But this resurrection is a resurrection of the body. The body literally comes back alive, eats fish in John chapter 21, right? Walks through walls in John 19, if I'm not, John 20, right? And walks through walls and yet is, is physical and yet hyper-physical, is beyond physical and yet also physical. When I think about, about God's resurrecting of Jesus' body and His body now is in many ways like us, still bearing the marks as He showed the Apostle Thomas, see the marks on my hands and on my side. So it still bears scars. It still can hold food. Right? He eats the fish. It doesn't fall off him. Right? It holds, it retains the food. And yet, it can do things our bodies cannot do. Then I saw the resurrected body is the perfect picture of natural and supernatural come together. It contains all the properties of natural and it contains the properties of the supernatural and in the resurrection, I see what God is going to do with all of us in New Jerusalem when our own bodies will be lifted up like the one of the Son of Man and that gives me hope because today we fight with cancer, today we fight with sickness, today we fight with, with allergies and eczema and all kinds of bodily uh, bones, joints, we fight with osteoporosis, we fight with all these things in our bodies and Alzheimer's and dementia, we fight with all these things but the Lord says, one day I will give you a resurrected body and I show you my son's body. I show you my son's body to show you what hope you have in the future. I show you first. And this, let this testimony of my son's body be a living hope, a living hope for all of us so that in the days to come, and Peter talks about it, go home and look at 1 Peter 1, that all of us are saved now into a living hope of the resurrection. St. Peter, and through that, he opens up a path for life. Because no longer do we stand around moping about the decay of the world around us and the decay of our bodies and the decay of, of our human relationships. He cuts a road out of dead ends. He opens a path for us. So that in Acts 6, in, in Psalm 16, David already said, he already said, my flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades and he will not. Your body will experience some form of earthly decay and then God will resurrect your body. He will resurrect your body into everlasting glory. 
and your body will do things that you never thought you could and if you're past a certain age and you can't quite get up from your chair the same way anymore and your back starts doing things you hope it never did and when you walk your knees start cracking and creaking and the Lord says I will not abandon your soul and your flesh your flesh will not see corruption it will in one sense and then it won't and then when He raises you up for New Jerusalem, your body will not see corruption. Your body will be glorified like the one that Christ's body is, is, is like now, right? And then you make known to me the path of life. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the path of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except, no one has access to the Father except through me. Sometimes we think it's a very offensive statement because we think, wow, so, so, so exclusive. So This Jesus has a monopoly on heaven, has a monopoly on God. Frankly, if a son says to people, you have no access to the Father except through me, and the father says, you have no access to the father except through my son. I don't think it's very offensive because it's a father-son relationship and it's the son who's giving access to others to the father. And frankly, out of humility, I would say the father and the son have full prerogative to set up what the access looks like. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the gate. Come through me because I am the gate. And because... I live, he says, you also will live. Because Jesus has come alive into everlasting life, you too shall come into everlasting life. You will not just live and die and then blink out of existence and lose consciousness and as if you never were. He says, and neither will you live and die and spend eternity in darkness alone, in outer darkness or in some form of aloneness, in some kind of torment, in some kind of loneliness. He says, because I live, you too shall live. And for many of us, we encounter situations in our lives and things in our hearts that make us feel like I'm dead. There's a part of our lives that uh, parts of our hearts that are that have been that have died. Maybe we're so so cynical that we parts of our hearts have died. Maybe we're staring at situations that are so so heavy and we feel parts of our lives have died. Maybe you're facing a, a debilitating illness. Not for you, but maybe for your family member, and you think that God, is there any hope? He says, Because I live, you too will live. And this life that we live on earth will live in faith in the Son of God. Meaning, this life we live on earth, we give it our best shot. We give it our best shot for Jesus, knowing that the real stuff happens after. It's not wish to heaven to be an angel on clouds. The real stuff happens because eternity stands on that other shore. And how we see out this life, we will continue on that other shore. And so if you see out this life with Jesus, you will continue on that other shore with Jesus. If you see out this life rejecting Jesus, you will start eternity without Him. And my fear is that you will see out the rest of eternity without Him. And that's really the existence that some people have called hell. That's all. 
That's my idea of hell. Eternity without Jesus. It's just unspeakable, unthinkable. I want you to see out this life tight with Christ. Tight with Christ. So that on the other shore, you can begin tight with Christ into everlasting. To everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you a lot, God. We thank you, O Father, that you've given us resurrection life and that life is, is available, that life is on hand, that life is, is, is given access to through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray, Father God, that we will all turn our hearts and turn our lives to King Jesus and to make Him our King and give Him full allegiance. I pray, Father God, that you will remind us and show us that this King is a loving, it gives us access to a loving Father. And in the arms of this loving Father, we can say, Lord, thank you. Oh, Lord, thank you. I come into your presence as a child comes before his or her Father, and I'm loved, and I'm seen, and I'm wanted. Father, thank you that today I'm not alone, but Christ walks with me. I thank you, Lord God, that in my darkest night, I know Emmanuel, God with us, God with me. And I pray right now that if there is any one of us who have walked very far from the Lord, the Lord Jesus calls you home on this night, on this day. The Lord Jesus calls you home, not home, home, don't be scared. The Lord Jesus calls you, come home, my son, come home, my daughter. You have been wandering far. And I want to love you. And I want to show you that my death was for you. I want to show you that I've been raised back to life so that you know that you too can be raised into eternal, everlasting life. And you don't need to worry about decay and corruption and sickness and death and darkness and all that forever. I am yours. And if there's any one of us who does not know Christ in this way, but you're starting to know Christ in this way, I want to say it's a good idea to know Christ in this way. And I want to pray and invite you to join the family of faith to say, this Christ who died for you, He loves you. He loves you. Do not reject Him on this day, but say yes to Him. And Jesus says, if you say yes to me before men, I will acknowledge you and say yes to you before all the hosts of heaven. And if you want to say yes to Jesus, say now, yes. Say yes, Jesus. That's all you need to say is yes to Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this day, for your goodness, for your mercy, that we can come before your feet, bow at your feet and lift you high. Lord Jesus, we exalt you, we make much of you, we glorify you, be glorified. And in all this, for all my life, not just our lives here on earth, but for all our eternal life, I am yours. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that today, Lord God, you're showing us a revelation of our Jesus. 
And so today, Father God, we want to come and be and be and be held by this Jesus all the days of our lives. So Lord Jesus, teach us to carry the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus in our hearts and in our lives always. That though death is something that the whole world fears, though death is something the whole world pantang, but in Christ, death comes with resurrection and it is a glorious thing to belong to Jesus. So Father, we thank you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. We glory in you, O Lord, but in O Lord God, because you have triumphed over the worst possible. And today, we triumph together with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His countenance to face you and give you shalom. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Let's give God praise. Let's give God praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.